0: Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.
1: Hi there, and welcome to Stock Club, a podcast brought to you by My Wall Street. I'm James, and joining me in today's episode are Anne-Marie and Rory from the My Wall Street Analyst team. This week to celebrate the very first in-person Horizon members event that we held here in Dublin, Ireland. We're running a Desert Island Stock Special of Stock Club. In this episode, Rory and Anne-Marie are going to pitch me three companies that they would be happy to invest in today and then forget about for the next 10 years. Some really, really interesting companies pitched here by the guys, so it's really, really worth checking out. Stock Club will return as normal next week, but for now, enjoy this Desert Island Stock Special. Rory and marie welcome to this week's Stock Club Desert Island Stock Special. That is a mouthful. So look, before we kick off today, I've got some nicely themed questions to kind of get us in the mood, get us to that desert island. So I'm going to start off with one, which is kind of a, a favourite here at my Wall Street Sunday, so, 2000 classic Castaway, which obviously Emmett's a big fan of um, having tweeted Tom Hanks once or being tweeted back by Tom Hanks. I'll let him tell the story maybe next week. But how long did Tom Hanks' Hanks's character actually spend on the island in Castaway? Uh, like four years. What's your guess, Anne Marie?
2: God. He went kind of crazy. So, I don't know, like two and a half?
1: Four years exactly, Rory. Well done. Oh, nice. Yeah. Well, not exactly, but yeah. Roughly four years, <laughs> so uh, yeah, pretty good. Let's go. Uh, yeah, because she had
3: to get over him and then like marry his dentist, didn't she? Wasn't the
1: four years is a quick turnaround, all the same <laughs> for that. though. to grieve and remarry, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I won't criticize. <laughs> How? What's the longest that anyone ever uh, historically has lived on a desert island for by themselves? Ooh, um, I honestly have no idea. Yeah, forty no years.
3: Idea. Four years, floor, yeah. <laughs> four years, four years,
1: four years, four four years, four months. Uh, Alexander Selkirk, who was the inspiration for Robinson Crusoe. So there you go. Wow. Uh, do, do you did feel he get like...
2: stuck out there? Or he did it on purpose.
1: So he was. I think he tried to to start a mutiny on the ship he was on. Oh no, it wasn't. They stopped on. It was. It was the an island in the South Pacific, and they stopped on the island to refuel or or to restock the ship. And he um, he said the ship wasn't seaworthy. And he said, I'd prefer to stay on this island and get back on that ship. So the captain gave him, gave him like a rifle and said, fine, you're staying there. And he, he kind of had a quick turn around, turn of heart. But uh, they left him there for four years. And he was actually right. The ship sunk then <laughs> shortly afterwards. Yeah. So it worked out better for him, I suppose, if uh, <laughs> relatively. So look today is our, our desert island stock special in in celebration of our first horizon in person members event but before we kick off and get into our desert island stocks i think we kind of need to establish exactly what we mean by a desert island stock so to me a desert island stock kind of implies a company that you'd be happy to invest a significant amount of money into and then kind of just forget about it for a long time maybe even a decade or so so longer than four years um it's the epitome of long-term investing really it's kind of a company that you find that you've such faith in, I suppose, their long-term growth prospects that that you're happy to just park your money there and leave it and, and return in, in a decade or two and, and uh, be confident of the returns. Rory Henry, is that kind of the, the same definition of desert island stock that you guys have?
3: Yeah, I got. when you asked us to do this, I kind of went on kind of. Uh, so I I kind of went on the thing of like, well, what companies do you just kind of trot along and do their thing Um, year year after year. uh, There's companies that you tend to not have to worry about that much. Um, The ones that have been through, uh, like I've seen it all at this point. It was always, I have a good history of navigating um, murky waters. Um, And then I also kind of threw in a kind of probably higher risk one at the end just to, just to get some potential growth going.
1: (laughs) What about you, Henry? Well,
2: I kept getting the timeline confused because I think when Emmett initially pushed the idea, he said 20 years, and then you today said 10 years, and then Emmett today said 25 years. (laughs) So I was a bit unclear of how long we were meant to be holding these for, but I think my process was kind of... I went like, yeah, I did kind of what Rory did. I picked like one safe haven where I was like, yeah, this company is going to be still trucking along in at least, in at least mm. 10 years. But then my other two picks were kind of companies that I think have really strong tailwinds but are probably like a multi-decade long growth okay. story. And they were ones that I'm excited – like if we could flash forward 10 or 20 years, I'd be really excited to go and check in with them. Um, so that was kind of my strategy here. Maybe a little bit riskier than Rory's picks, but yeah. Okay.
1: No, no harm in that. Well, look, let's not delay any longer. Let's get straight into it. Rory, well, Rory and Ria have asked you both to pick three. So Rory, what's your first Desert Island stock?
3: So my first one is is one of your favourites, as you never stop uh, reminding me. Let me guess, uh, let me guess. Home Depot. On. It
1: is Home Depot. <laughs> and, and it's not just because they sell bags of sand, is it?
3: It's not just because <laughs>
1: they sell bags of sand at It is an element of it. Um, <laughs>
3: Yeah. Like Home Depot, you know, it's a company that's been around over 50 years. It's been on the public exchanges for nearly 40 years. It's the largest home improvement improvement retailer in the world, generates about 150 billion uh, a year. It's one of those companies that has managed to generate revenue growth pretty much, you know, consistently in good times and bad, um, even through the COVID-19 crisis. I mean. It admittedly wasn't huge revenue growth, but I mean, pretty impressive for what is still mostly a kind of brick and mortar retailer to still see revenue growth when the entire country was shut down and people were trapped in their homes. Jason Moser once said to me that there was a company that does well in, in good and bad times because when the economy is good, homes are getting built and people are, are going up market. And um, when the economy is bad, people are, are kind of at home doing DIY and trying to, trying to make the most of what they have. It's, you know, it's a little simplistic, but it's, you know, it's a good place to start. You know, the, the fact is, in the US in particular, you've got a real aging housing market. Yeah, There's a lack of supply. Uh, there's robust demand. And that may vary you know, with macroeconomic conditions. But at the end of the day, um, people still need somewhere to live. And they're ty- typically willing to invest a bit of money you know, in improving that when possible. Mm. you know being being the biggest typically comes with some great advantages as well. you know I think the scale and, and how important it is for this business um first of all, they have incredible bargaining power, uh not just with vendors, but you know even the things like like rent, you know those massive warehouses that they rent you know they they have they have scale when it comes to kind of bargaining um in terms of keeping keeping their costs low. And it's a company that built an incredible brand equity from passing those savings on to their consumers. Yeah. You know, even in terms of like, you know, if, if you have a product in the space of home uh, improvements, you want it to be in Home Depot and you'll pretty much do anything you can to get it into Home Depot. And Yeah. And that's, you know, that's kind of what drives traffic and brand loyalty. As people come to Home Depot, they know they're going to get low prices. They know they're going to have a huge selection. And it also benefits from them in terms of like even like exclusive product launches. Uh, and they're and they 've got private label offerings as well, so they have this whole kind of business built on a huge scale I think as well it's kind of one of those uh it's one of those businesses that's very well insulated from e commerce uh, and that 's for two reasons: one is that the products don't quite lend themselves to home delivery uh, so that's down to what's called the weight value ratio of a product line. If you're, you know, if you when it comes to delivering stuff, smaller and more valuable is better. Uh, it's it's really profitable to deliver a diamond ring to someone's house, but as things get heavier and less valuable, it becomes less and less cost of, cost effective. So it, it's, um, it's
1: hard to Amazon Prime a bag of cement. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> it's it's
3: it doesn't really make any sense to do it from a cost cost perspective. The other element that like protect, uh, protects it from, from e-commerce, I, I think, is it, that the company has invested really, really heavily in, in customer service. So it's really one of the pillars of the whole business. It's, you know, DIY is one of those things where some, some people come in and they'll be very well experienced and very well educated in what they want, they want. But a vast majority of people, particularly if they're trying something new, and it is kind of one of those areas that people do try new things, a lot of them don't know what they're doing. And just being able to go in and knowing that there is a team there of dedicated experts who are there to help you pick the right product, uh, to potentially show you how to do it, to, you know, to give you tips on, on on things to avoid, is a huge draw for people. And I think that that's one of like the elements of going to Home Depot that, that the customers really love. So they've invested heavily in that. You know, it's they know when people come through the doors, they know there's going to be an expert available to get them the right product. And that's kind of what continues to drive Home Depot. But that's, now, that's only their consumer-facing business. You know, obviously, you need to think about the company's trade businesses as well. Um, HD Supply, which they completed the purchase of a few years ago, uh, is very much in, in, in terms of the, the pro stuff. And, and that's obviously going to be a big driver for them uh, yeah. when, when the economy is good and homes are being built. And then Interline Brands, which they bought in t- 2013, that's very much then the kind of maintenance, repair and operation side of the business which I do think pr- provides kind of further downside protection uh, for this company, because kind of no matter what's happening on the consumer side of things, buildings still need to be repaired. They still need to be maintained. Floors still need to be mopped, essentially. Uh, and that's why it's kind of one of those businesses I think I could go to a desert island and kind of not really worry about for the next 10, 15 years, whatever
1: timeline we're thinking of. Yeah, I think we can just wrap it up there. Home Depot got mentioned. I'm I'm happy. <laughs> no, thanks for that, Rory. Yeah, yeah. Home Depot, fantastic stock. Uh, one of my favorite, as you mentioned. And, Rory, let's jump on over to you. What's your first desert island stock?
2: Uh, the first one I'm going to go with is kind of my my big safety one, which is Apple. I think yeah. it's a is a pretty easy pick. And um, kind of my line of thinking here was that the ecosystem is inescapable, and the brand is absolutely phenomenally cool. And I don't think we're ever at least in probably the next ten to twenty years, I don't think that's ever going to falter. And I actually kind of want to tell a story that happened recently about Apple that I think is a is a is a good um reminder of this, which was recently in America last month, if you went on Google's homepage, there was a article that they placed below the search button that just said it's time for Apple to fix texting and it's this is kind yeah. of one of the first times that we saw a massive big tech company. Come out and call out another big tech company in such a public way, and it was um, Google basically saying Apple uses SMS to um, underline iMessage, and SMS is technology that was invented in the 1990s, and Apple has just stayed with it; they haven't like moved forward at all. Whereas all Android phones are using RCS messaging, and the the difference between these two systems, the reason that Android messages always look so bad in iPhones is because iPhones are not set up to receive RCS text messages, mm. which means that you know if so- if someone with an Android phone texts you and sends you a, p- a picture or a video, it looks like crap. They're so always so blurry, right? And Google was basically saying, Apple, please, can you just change your messaging system so that our messages look fine on iPhones? And Apple said, no, because <laughs> truthfully, the most brilliant like anti-marketing that has ever been done in our lifetime is Apple making Android messages green on iPhones. Because yeah, anytime was, you yeah. see someone who texts you on a green phone, you go, mm, no, <laughs> that's not it's it. It's
3: never something I've ever cared about, but I have seen like hilarious pictures from like the tinder subreddit where someone was like hold on wait you've got a google phone and he was like red flag like-, <laughs> like unmatched
2: <laughs> yeah it's like a real cultural thing particularly in the united states where like texting is still very predominant i think in europe like whatsapp is kind of taken over for facebook messenger but in the united states like texting is still very prominent and, and that just is kind of this reminder that like Apple can just establish itself as being cool, and whatever Apple does is cool. Yeah. Apple is using technology from the 1990s, and is still like, no, we're still up to date and cutting edge and cool. <sighs> Whereas Google's going around using the most up to date technology, and Apple's just no, 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 we're going to set this precedent. So then I dug into this, and this is actually a trend that we can see generationally. So currently in the United States, with teenagers, 88% of American teenagers use an iPhone. That's wow. a sig- significant margin. Wow. And nine out of ten American teenagers said that their next phone will be an iPhone. And when you're a teenager, you. Sp- set consumer and spending habits for the rest of your life.
1: Yeah. So that's incredible. Wow. In
2: 10 to 20 years, the vast 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 majority of te- of of adults at least in America and probably in the rest of the Western world are going to be using an iPhone. And so just think about, you know, Apple is a foot in the door company. It needs you to buy its tech in order for you to use its services. And so I think the iPhone is virtually the foot in the door for a number of services that Apple has already launched or is in in the way of launching. And I think that that's going to be huge for them down the line. So when I talk about services, I think the two that I'm most interested in at the minute is Apple Pay, which I think is becoming more and more popular. I think it will grow to become more popular in the United States. They tend to be quite far behind us in terms of banking because Apple Pay is using contactless payment, which like I think the United States only got about six months ago. It's absolutely ridiculous. They're still Mm -hmm. on like chips and inserting and putting in codes and that sort of thing. Um, But I think Apple Pay is going to be revolutionary. And also based upon the back of Apple Pay, we're about to get buy now, pay later, which I think could really shake things up in terms of credit cards. Um, And then that's on top of like Apple Music, Apple Streaming, iCloud, the whole infrastructure of things that they sell. I think that service is segment is going to continue to be strong. And then on the hardware side of things, they're also shaking things up by demanding that they control a greater portion of their manufacturing, which will bolster their um, margins moving forward. And then I guess if you're on the speculative side of things, you know, Apple has just invested heavily in VR technology, which I think will challenge Meta in a way that I'm quite satisfied with. And I don't know, like maybe we'll get an Apple car one day. So. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I just think I just think there's such a strong business and there's there's no way around them. So, yeah, yeah,
1: that brand, like you're right, I suppose when you come to Desert Island stocks like that brand, it's such an enduring brand and, and whatever about, you know, I was going to challenge you about, I think just a few days ago, reports came out about, you know, they're, they're pairing back. They plan to ramp up um, the production of the new model of iPhone and they're pairing that back now, but. I suppose you know, we're not talking about short-term here, we're talking about yeah. that long-term brand and yeah, Apple is really, it's crazy when you think about it, you know, people becoming like fanboys of, of a brand, a company like that, yeah. but it's 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 more it's more present with Apple than, than any other company I've ever witnessed. Good one, thanks for that and Marie, let's go back to you Rory, so you've already got Home Depot in, in your treasure chest on your your desert island, what's the next company you're putting in there?
3: Yeah, so similarly to Home Depot, this is one that's been around for decades, seen plenty of recessions and financial crises and the Lost, it managed to navigate the waters really handily. Um, it's Mastercard. Um, okay. So Mastercard, as you know, along with Visa, essentially operates kind of duopoly in terms of the payment infrastructure. Um, in pretty much every country in the world except China. You know, it's never good to own a monopoly. That does tend to create a lot of bother with regulators. Uh, there's even a story actually. That, you know, Bill Gates famously invested in Apple when it was on its last legs because he was worried that Microsoft would end up a monopoly, and he wanted to be able to say, "No, no, hold on. There's another <laughs> company over there." <laughs> <laughs> it's also doing computers don't just don't don't look my way yeah you tend to get away a bit more with it in a duopoly and MasterCard and Visa certainly have over the last 40 50 years one of the primary elements of MasterCard that I particularly like is Obviously, they have a massive network and that creates network effects. You know, where your card is accepted, the more people want it, the more people want it, the more it will be accepted. So amongst Visa and MasterCard, you have these massive networks where, where in the developed world anyway, it's, it's very rare that both those cards aren't accepted, basically wherever digital payments are accepted. Mm. Um, and that's a great runway for a business because, remember, there's still an awful lot of cash payments happening out there in the world. Uh, we saw digital payments overtake cash just a few years ago. Uh, and things like the pandemic have certainly sped that sped that up. Um, this kind of war on cash, but you're now finding kind of small businesses. You know, I see coffee shops all the time now that won't even accept cash. Um, yeah, and and that's been empowered by innovations in terms of kind of mobile payments, tap to pay and hardware innovations as well. You think of like the point of sale stuff that the companies like uh, Square have done and and what's the, the European one, Zettel. And, and this makes, it actually is starting to make a huge amount of sense for kind of smaller businesses. Like it didn't used to, In 10 years ago, you would find uh, most small businesses here anyway didn't have any digital payments infrastructure. You would actually have to go and get cash out for those purchases. But now with what companies like Square are providing where the cost of hardware and the kind of resulting processing fees actually makes sense for merchants because with digital payments you can kind of take advantage of you know a huge variety of merchant solutions things that help you with banking helps with accounting helps you with even like inventory management that stuff just wasn't available to smaller businesses you know 10 15 years ago or at least it wasn't economically viable for them to invest in that in those solutions that shift has obviously like attracted thousands of new fintech companies to try and get in on the action but you know look through them the vast majority are still using kind of mastercard and visa infrastructure at the back yeah. end So we look at things like digital banks that have set up and become really prominent. They're all on some way, you know, using MasterCard or Visa's Rails in terms of actually transferring money. Another element of payments networks is there's just loads of cost advantages uh, when it comes to scale. You know, it's one of those things, it's expensive to set up, but once you have it set up, it's like a toll booth just kind of continues to generate cash, a little bit of maintenance every now and again. And, you know, there's things are going to happen that are going to see this company have, you know, slower months than, and faster months. You know, During the pandemic, they did suffer because cross-border transactions took a hit. That's that's a kind of real um, high-value transaction for them. But we're seeing that recover very rapidly. I think it was up 57% in the last quarter. Another risk to the business, of course, is regulators. But we've, you know, this company, again, has managed to navigate regulatory challenges in the past. The EU has had a cap on their fees for, I think, nearly 10 years now. Hasn't, you know, they've still managed to grow revenue year over year. Uh, there's been some movement in the US and kind of forcing banks to offer alternatives. But again, this is the kind of risk that analysts have been worrying about for a long time. It hasn't really slowed down this business substantially. Yeah. And another thing to note about the company, it's, you know, they have actually been building out alter- alternative revenue streams over the last 10 years. That's... There's an an element of the business that is very much often overlooked, particularly as it's still called other revenues
1: on the income (laughs) statements. That's the
3: kind of thing that investors typically don't focus on when they're reading an income statement, what these other revenues. Yeah. So investors obviously typically focusing on their kind of processing fees, which is still the majority of revenue, but these other revenues which comprise mostly of kind of value-added services are growing pretty rapidly. It kind of started with these about 10-15 years ago with like very basic fraud prevention tools and kind of marketing services now they've expanded into anything everything from like cybersecurity to digital identity services to like real in-depth artificial intelligence and data analytics and this revenue is growing at twice the rate of their overall net revenue and a lot of it is very highly recurring according to management so there is that hidden growth driver there that i think kind of de-risked this business somewhat in terms of a downturn
1: yeah, absolutely. I suppose the one question I have to finish off is: you mentioned the duopoly of, of Mastercard and Visa. What's the difference? Why Mastercard over Visa? Um,
3: we started Rubicoin, Mastercard was already in there. Yeah. <laughs> and it always became people asked multiple times, like why? You know, I think you know you could possibly pick one or the other. Mastercard has. I always felt that they were the kind of they had a more focus on kind of innovation. Yeah, um, and as the kind of smaller player, they they tended to have kind of more room to run, I suppose. But honestly, I think you know if you go onto most most kind of message forums and ask which one you pick, people kind of go both. Yeah, <laughs> by both. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Okay, yeah. Thank, thanks for that, Rory. I'm going to come back to you now, Anne-Marie, but before we move on, I just want to remind you all that this is just a small taster of what Horizon members experienced at our very first members event here in Dublin, Ireland earlier this week. In addition to the full analyst team pitching their Desert Island stock, so Mike and Emmett threw theirs in as well. Emmett also had a great discussion with Bill Mann, a senior analyst at the Motley Fool and the host of the morning show on Motley Fool Live. Of course, that's not all that a Horizon member gets though. Horizon is a follow me investing service so you get to peek over the shoulder of Emmett and see everything he does with his portfolio. All the companies he's analysing, all the alerts for the trades he makes and when he makes them. Emin is targeting a CAGR of 21% over 12 years with this portfolio. So he's adopting a high-risk, high-reward strategy in hunting down some of the most exciting public companies out there. As Emmett mentioned at the members event earlier this week, there's never been a better time than now to pick up some life-changing investments. For the past three months in Horizon, for example, Emmett has invested a significant amount in a tiny founder-led company that has been completely ignored by by Wall Street to date. It's a company I can honestly say I'd never heard of until Emmett brought it up. If you want to find out more about Horizon or even sign up and join Emmett on his journey, just follow the link in the notes for today's show or go to mywallstreet.com forward
0: slash about forward slash Horizon to find out more.
1: Henry, I'm gonna come back to you. So you've already put Apple in your in your treasure chest. What's the next company you're picking?
2: My next one is I wanted like an in-person retailer, and I would have gone with Costco, but I talk about Costco <laughs> ad nauseum, so I was like, it's redundant at this point. So, but but
1: you still had to sneak it in there somewhere. I had to sneak it in
2: because I think if I could only bring one stock, I would maybe just bring Costco. But anyway, I decided to go with LoveSack. Okay, which is a bit of an interesting one, It's a, a funky one because it's just yeah. a couch company. Sexual so couches. Yes, she seems a bit vulnerable. But, um, the reason I decided to go with this is again, if we're going back to this long term horizon, which I initially pitched twenty years, I think that we are probably pretty seriously underestimating the impact of climate change. Mm-hmm. And I think if we go two decades down the line, I think things are going to be pretty serious. And the we'll idea all be, of
1: I'll be losing living on desert islands, <laughs> yeah.
2: And I think the idea that you need to like align your shopping with being climately conscious, I think is going to become more and more important. Mm-hmm. Um, and right now today, uh, 80% of people between the ages of 19 and 29 think it's important to shop in sustainable brands. On top of that, actually, women tend to be more environmentally conscious than men, and they have significant buying power when it comes to home furnishings. So even though men tend to have more, more money than women, women are the, make the purchase decision in 94% of home furnishings. That's pretty phenomenal. Wow. wow. Yeah. So apparently women are buying all the couches. No man is involved <laughs> in purchasing a couch. I also think that women, uh, as, in terms of consumers, are more likely to think in like a long term mindset, which is what LoveSack wants. So just as a reminder, LoveSack creates sectional module couches, which basically means that like each individual element of the couch is sold separately. So you can rearrange the couch in anything you want. You can get under couch storage, you can get speakers put in it, it can get any color, you can switch out the color of the couch at any time. You can switch out the cushions, you can switch out the armrest, absolutely anything you want with the main idea being the couch is completely flexible, put it in any arrangement you want, you know, five years down the line, oh i need new cushions i need a different color that's totally fine the goal of the company is that they will stop selling full couches by 2040 they want to be a completely circular company where all they're doing is remanufacturing and reproducing couches hold uh, h- quite... on
1: one moment there so if, yeah. if this is a desert island stock and you're talking about 20 years it's 2022 yeah. now so if they want to be company wants to stop producing stuff in in less than two decades yeah. uh, Make that make sense to me.
2: So basically what will end up happening is that people either get sick of their couches and they can send it back to LoveSack and LoveSack remanufacture it and sell it secondhand. Okay. Or their idea is that within 20 years, we will have produced and sold enough couches that we don't need to sell them anymore. And all we need to be doing is basically selling recurring revenue of people who own these couches will come back to us and just buy other elements. They hope that, that their couches will be that popular in that time. And so far, like the, this is a relatively new company in terms of their sectionals. I think the sectional only came to market in like 2017, maybe. It's actually worked out pretty well. So customer lifetime value... Grows every single year, every single quarter. People are coming back to this company. Forty-one percent of transactions in 2021 were from repeat customers. A pretty good like measure of this is to do like lifetime customer value divided by customer acquisition cost, which as of right now for LoveStack is 5.2x. Right, like that's the that's the ratio. And when it comes to like SaaS businesses, anything over three is considered quite good. So to have a company that all they do is sell couches to have five x is quite impressive because people who have bought into this idea, consumers who do believe in this idea we need to stop sending so much stuff to landfills. Yeah, They seem to be fine with it. They're like, yeah, I'm going to spend a little bit more money up front for this couch. And then, yeah, I'll go back every two years and get a different color depending on what I paint my walls. But more than that, kind of beyond this premium brand that Lovesack has managed to build based upon its environmentalism, it's actually a pretty phenomenal business on the inside. So because the couches are fully customizable, it means that in order to sell them, they don't need to have a massive warehouse where they have you know dozens and dozens of couches sitting around. Their showrooms are really small. They tend to be malls high-end shopping centers are in city centers like when we were doing initial research on love i sent one of my friends to the love store and she lives in new york and she went to the center of manhattan to go to a love store because wow. they're small enough that that's where they can go but then on top of that it means they have a great e-commerce segment because yeah you could design your own couch fully online 30 percent of their sales come from an e-commerce segment they also funnily enough have a great partnership with costco and they send <laughs> their couches all around costco for so people to try out yeah but they um have a very strong gross margin. They're entirely vertically integrated. Gross margin sits at about 55%. They just became profitable in 2021, and they've pretty much kept that up quarter over quarter. Yeah, I just... It's just such an interesting company, and Mm. they have been growing every single quarter. They have a five-year Kager of 45% for revenue growth. That's shocking. Yeah. Um. They have a founder CEO. His name is Sean Nelson. He's also their head designer. He basically controls like every element of these couches. It's his idea. It was his idea that they would be an entirely circular business by 2040. It's just like pretty brilliant. And yeah. like the their one kind of reservation, their biggest risk is that It's ridiculous because their only product is a couch. And you're thinking, everybody makes couches. Surely that can be disrupted? And yeah, like, fair enough. Like, other people can make modular couches. They did not invent this concept. But LoveSack has pretty phenomenal patents. They have every single element of the couch patented, particularly the interlocking system for how certain elements fit together, which means that that cannot be reproduced. So there are other modular couches, but they basically mass pieces of the couches can be disconnected and reconnected. Whereas LoveSack, the entire, like, the back of the couch disconnects from the base, disconnects from the cushion connects from the armrest and that's all completely covered by patents just to kind of that end they sued lazy boy recently for ripping them off and making a couch that was too similar and they won so obviously they have some sort of protection in that copyright sense
1: good economic moat yeah um yeah when when you're describing love sack there to me it really reminded me of i suppose patagonia a company that's been in the, the news quite recently and i think a similarity there is patagonia has built this brand and a very successful business but this brand around I suppose you know getting towards this kind of nearly circular business and you know the I know for example you can bring your your clothes back to the Patagonia store and get them repaired and, and stuff like that and it, it feeds into the brand which I suppose links to your previous pick Apple it's that this these companies, whatever about, I suppose, the quarter to quarter, year to year fluctuations in business, if they're fostering this brand that people really identify with and identify maybe with their their wider view on the world and their wider ethics or whatever you want to call it, that's an incredibly hard thing to disrupt.
2: Yes, um, I would 100% agree. And I think this is it's only going to become more and more important that we have companies that are being sustainable and ethical. And I think in investing, it's also going to become a trend, you know, we're seeing more and more people look to for a type of ethical investing, investing in companies that are aligning with their beliefs. So yeah, I think Lovestack's going to benefit either way.
1: Brilliant. Love that. Cool. Rory, I'm going to come back to you for your final Desert Island stock. And I think you said this one is a little bit more of a riskier one.
3: This is certainly a riskier one. Um, It's (laughs) definitely high uncertainty, hopefully kind of high reward play. And it could potentially be a little biased because it's um, it's Shopify. It's one of my oldest holdings, one of my biggest winners, despite the recent sell-off. The, kind of, the first element of Shopify is that I just really like what they do. Uh, yeah. I'm always keen on investing in businesses that are out there to try and empower entrepreneurs. Maybe it's like a little bit um, idealistic of me, but I do think there's... The great amount of creativity out there in the world and plenty of people have the ability to come up with great businesses like business ideas yeah and um, however an awful lot of the time that kind of doesn't translate into actually getting a business uh up and running so you know shopify as we know is out there trying to create essentially a turnkey solution for entrepreneurs to launch an online business and um, doesn't necessarily have to be an online business but you know a primarily online business Um, and i'm always keen on supporting that you know i believe The company itself has proven the value of their solution already. It's highlighted by the fact that they have the largest amount of merchants on any platform. This uh, creates network effects, both in terms of, you know, creating an kind of expert online support that's out there, also attracts developers to the platform. They have over 8,000 apps now in their marketplace. Obviously, you know, with any software product, there's typically kind of switching costs involved. And the way I like to think about switching costs is they obviously, you know, those costs typically increase depending on how mission critical the software is. So if you're look, looking at a company like Shopify and what it's providing for kind of small and medium sized businesses, the platform isn't just mission critical. It, In many ways, it is the entire business. Yeah. Uh, so Shopify, you know, begins life as your storefront. It's where you display your products. It typically... first point of contact that you have with the customer then obviously you know you you move down into the functionality behind the storefront so shopify can handling can handle your order processing which is the very backbone of your sales funnel that can expand to include payments it can include inventory management fulfillment shipping and in the future potentially advertising so uh, you know i think the switching costs are incredibly high for a platform like shopify particularly as the company has made a name for itself in terms of ease of ease of use so you know Customers using it, people who've got used to the platform. I don't think they're going to find kind of an easier system or an easier platform out there. Yeah. Uh, now, obviously, kind of the the issue with Shopify isn't necessarily customers switching, but because of kind of the breadth of its customer base, they do have an issue in terms of churn. And you know, as I said, it focuses on small and medium sized businesses, and um, and that is where you're going to see a lot of churn. You know, small and medium sized businesses. We we know. Typically, you know, tw- somewhere between 25% and 75% of them f- uh, fail in the first few years, depending that's on- a, That's
1: f- a pretty big range.
3: <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, there's different, there's different kind of ranges for different industries and, and stuff like that. Yeah. But, you know, it, is, it is an area where, where you see an awful lot of churn and the company doesn't provide churn numbers in its reporting. Um, but if they did, I would assume they were quite high because yeah. we know that most, most of them fail in the first few years. That's not necessarily a bad thing. I know it sounds like a bad thing, but if you think about this business and what it's out there to achieve, it is targeting kind of small and medium sized businesses, an area where other other firms don't and so If you don't see high churn numbers, you could be saying, well, you're obviously not fulfilling your objectives here and targeting the kind of businesses that are going to go out there and try stuff and potentially fail. We know in terms of their enterprise customers, of which kind is their kind of Shopify Plus uh, customers, they have a kind of 90 plus percent retention rate. But obviously that's not going to be that kind of the smaller businesses. What we do know is like shoppers are going or seeking out the products that are on Shopify's platform. In 2020, they had 300 million shoppers across their platform. That number almost doubled to 597 million in 2022 wow. revenue has climbed 57 percent in that same time frame and gross merchandise volume has grown 47 percent in the time frame so this is still quite a you know high growth business now that's not to say the business doesn't have some serious challenges at the moment it definitely do, does and the the stock price decline that we've seen recently definitely reflects that uh obviously you know, there was a bit of a demand pull forward uh, with the pandemic. We see that we saw that across a host of companies, Amazon as well, uh, invested heavily. The company has net. you know, their, their fulfillment network plans have been a little slow to get off the ground. Uh, you know, we think back to the massive investments in infrastructure that Amazon made in its early days. Shopify kind of, I suppose, kind of tiptoed into the decision on that and, and have very much kind of, I don't know, they haven't really sort of figured out a clear path or a clear strategy. Uh, going down that route. That's investments that is going to you know, it's going to dampen profitability over the coming years. Meanwhile, Amazon is kind of coming at them as well with this kind of yeah. buy with Prime rollout. And um, that's a very compelling offer for merchants. And we've seen Shopify kind of trying to have it both ways. Uh, recently, they've kind of, they're letting their merchants use it, but they're also kind of half warning them not to use it. And finally, another issue that they're facing now is advertising. Uh, that was obviously totally kind of, you know, turned upside down with the changes in Apple's policies a few years ago. Uh, We know those changes really impacted Facebook's ability to target users. That was obviously going to impact Shopify as well. A lot of their merchants kind of relied on Facebook advertising. There is a kind of potential uh, silver lining to that, which is that, you know, when you have a platform with, with so many merchants and you've got a lot of shoppers eyes on your platform, you can kind of use that size and scale to do more kind of innovative things in terms of advertising I you know ben thompson wrote quite an interesting piece about how they could potentially start buying advertising for mm. their merchants and and kind of use their own data to help them target people so it's a company that's definitely going through a transitional period it's there's there's challenges bound um amazon's obviously not the kind of company you want going up against but uh i do like i do like the business i like the management team and um, i like the kind of culture of innovation that they've built there and I'm kind of, you know, keeping it, keeping it on my, uh, in my portfolio, thinking that, you know, this could still be a great winner down the line.
1: Yeah, absolutely. No, I love Shopify. Um, I, I really, really like that company. Thanks for that, Rory. and marie let's come to you. What's your final Desert Island stock for us today?
2: So my final pick is a little bit unusual as well, which I decided to go with Evelyn Health.
1: Okay, why? Which is a
2: – yeah, which is a complex business. So I'll do like a quick run through here and kind of – but like through the understanding the complexity of the business, you kind of understand why it's actually maybe a really interesting long-term hold. So um, Evelyn Health is focused on helping hospitals and primary care providers attempt to like achieve the impossible which is improve the quality of care with cu- without cutting costs mm. which specifically focused in the United States you know where healthcare is absolutely out of control in 2020 4.1 trillion dollars was spent on healthcare in the US like that's just phenomenally high insane and basically, what Evelyn Health is trying to do is help people launch a value based healthcare system. So, Evelyn does this through value based healthcare, where providers charge payers based upon overall healthcare outcomes for patients. So, this disincentivizes doctors from running tests and providing care that maybe isn't necessarily needed. And this yeah. is actually a problem you hear about a lot in the United States, where people go into hospitals and the hospital identifies they have a really comprehensive insurance. So, they just start running any kind of test that's going so that they can charge it to the insurance because the insurance will pay for it and the patient isn't any the wiser and that frustrates health insurance companies. The issue though is deploying value-based healthcare is really difficult. It's kind of like the healthcare version of chicken because you need both the health insurers and clinics and hospitals to agree to be on the same page and they're almost never on the same page because obviously health insurance companies don't want to pay any money but hospitals want to make the maximum amount of money out of each patient. So that means you have to get both parties to enter into a type of contract called a two-sided financial risk Implementation, which means that you need to convince doctors' practices to take on some risk, in that if they overcharge a patient or they overcharge the insurance company, they might have to refund the patient or payer if they exceed an agreed-to amount of coverage or care. Which this doesn't is, sound like
1: a contract <laughs> many many yeah. would want designed.
2: So it's kind of like a a nightmare scenario, really. But so Evelyn has to make this system possible by becoming the go-between. So they're not an insurance company. They're not, you know, a hospital provider or anything like that. They make value-based care possible by providing data analysis and human expertise. So doctors get the best up-to-date data to make healthcare decisions, while insurers get the best data to access risk and determine the costs of overall care. Because obviously, if you're trying to assess... How someone is going to do, you know, 10 years down the line, that's really difficult unless we've done a lot of research into things like preventative care. So, this changes patient experiences by forcing doctors and insurers to focus on this consistent check in type care. You know, you want to encourage a patient to come in once a year for a checkup. You don't want to see them 10 years down the line when they already have heart disease or they okay. already have cancer, yeah. right? Because that decreases the cost for everybody. So, That means that Evelyn is kind of on this great long term journey to try and fundamentally disrupt healthcare in the United States. But it's a really long term journey because you need to get as many people on board as possible. Because obviously, insurers only want to add it to their plans if there are enough providers for them to cover, and vice versa. Providers only want to add it if they know that enough insurers have it, have have the same plan. So Evelyn is basically doing this long term thing of they're adding people onto the plan and onto the plan and onto the plan. But Evelyn is fully aware of this. They know it's a long term thing. They signed 20 year contracts. Contracts. So if an insurance company signs up with them, they're locked in for a really long time. They're locked in for decades. And these last couple of quarters, kind of 2021, 2022, we are actually beginning to see these cogs really slowly turn in Evelyn's okay. favor. And that's kind of what's gotten me excited. So this year, they now covered 19.9 million people. That's roughly 6% of the United States population. And that number is up from 9.8 million people last year. So it's almost a doubling of the yeah. number of people that they're covering, um, which is pretty spectacular. They're also 20% of the payments in the United States right now are value-based, and a lot of them are flowing through Evelyn, because Evelyn is essentially the primary value-based helper in these cases. So in Q4 of last year, the company reported revenue of $248 million, which was only up 0.7% year over year. But Evelyn has been doing the last two, three years, has been doing a lot of work of di- of divesting out of businesses it wasn't interested in. For a while there, it kind of got caught up in buying up insurance companies, which isn't exactly what they wanted to be doing. They want to be a yeah. go-between. So they've been selling those off. So if we look outside of the divested assets, their revenue is actually up 40% year over year, okay. which is- Pretty crazy. And they've been maintaining that forty percent growth rate for the last three quarters. And so moving forward, I think there's now enough insurers and enough clinics that are on this program that we're starting to move forward. Yeah. And they've also been making some really, really interesting investments and acquisitions in various kind of intensive spaces. So it used to be for several years the only kind of Medical work that Evelyn was able to help with was primary care, so that's like really basic, you know, consistent check ins. They now own a secondary provider that is focused on oncology and cardiovascular health. Fifty percent of deaths in the United States are caused either by cancer or by um, heart attack or heart disease. So now they're saying, right, we want to go even long, t- we want to go even longer term. We want to be, you know, there with people who are about to start the fight for cancer and make them make a long term plan yeah. and work with their healthcare providers. So I think the opportunity here is really impressive. They've got. Um, really good renewal rates. I just like I just think something has to happen in the American healthcare system. I think there's far too much money is being spent. And I actually think Evelyn is going to be a player that's going to benefit from this gradual change in system.
1: That's exactly what I was going to say. It it seems to me that this is a, you know, we often talk about disruptive industries or or industries ripe for disruption. And I think there's there's probably few less than the American healthcare system. So this is kind of a you know, a long-term punt at that something has to change, and and this is perhaps one of the best solutions that Evelyn is offering.
2: Yeah, I I would agree, and I was quite quite impressed when I went through all of their financials and everything the last two years. Like they've seen significant movement in people being interested in this type of care. When we look at their revenue mix, sixty percent of their revenue is coming from new customers, forty percent is coming from a of, from existing customers, just yeah. from existing customers adding on new tech and new abilities. So yeah I would definitely be keeping an eye on Evelyn Health and I'd love to see where they are in 20 years
1: yeah absolutely great pick so Rory Emery thanks for that we had from Rory had Home Depot Mastercard and Shopify from anne we Apple Lovesack and Evelyn Health all companies on the my Wall Street shortlist I should point out and that is our Desert Island Stock Special and that's it for today's show remember guys if you want to find out more about Horizon or even catch up on the recording from our members event you can just follow the link in the notes for today's show or go to mywallstreet.com forward slash about forward slash Horizon to find out more for Stock Club if you any questions you'd like us to answer in future episodes, you can get in touch with us. You can find us on Twitter, that's at my wall street HQ, on TikTok, that's at my wall street, or just email us at pod and at That's P-O-D- and mywallst.com. If you're enjoying Stock Club, make sure to tell your friends about us and don't forget to leave a review or a rating for us on whatever platform you listen to us on. Stock Club will return as normal next week. Thanks for joining us today though, and we'll talk to you then.